Make sure to give my dad a five-star review. Get, make sure to like and subscribe to his YouTube. And thank you for listening and enjoy the show. show. <laughs> um, going back to Philemon, Paul says, uh, welcome him as you'd welcome me. And in a world where social status was everything, um, that's a big deal. So just take a cultural example today. You have the Met Gala, which just happened, which is the you know the wealthiest of the wealthiest. Imagine you showed up as a celebrity with a homeless person, and they say, "Where are your tickets?" And you said, "Welcome him, him or hers. You'd welcome me." Um, no, that's not going to work. But this is what Paul's <laughs> saying. This is what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, "Welcome the least of these, the way you'd welcome me, an apostle, a Roman citizen, a person of high status, a person that you want to get to know and rub shoulders with." Hello, Faithful Politics listeners. This is Josh Bertram, your faithful host, and we have back from his uh, gubernatorial campaign, uh, Will. Um, Will, how, how'd that go out there on the street? Did you kiss any babies? Yes, I I, I socially distanced um, and hugged a lot of um, people and babies. So, yeah, thanks. Yeah, Good. vote, vote, make the right choice, 2025. Right choice, 2025. And today we have... Uh, Nijay Gupta um, on the show with us. Nijay is a uh, teacher of New Testament. He teaches at Northern and works closely with their Master of Arts in New Testament and Doctorate of Ministry in New Testament uh, context cohorts there. He, Dr. Gupta, has been teaching for more than a decade. He's the author of a recent uh, study and book, Paul in the Language of Faith, which I have. And thank you for writing that, uh, Dr. Gupta. And um, he's going to be publishing, he has published a handful of books in 2020. Um, he serves as the editor-in-chief of the Bulletin for Biblical Research and co-editor of the Bible and God's World series with Scott McKnight, another professor, um, and as a member of the editorial board of both Ex Auditu and of the Biblical Interpretation series. He's a graduate of Miami of Ohio University, Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and the University of Durham. Thanks so much for joining us today. Should I call you Dr. Gupta Nijay? Um, do you have another, uh, another uh, uh, what do you call it, nickname that you like? Thanks, guys. Uh, thanks, Josh. Um, you know, I, I make a deal with my students that I can wear a T-shirt and hoodie to class and they can call me Nijay. So since we're, <laughs> since we're casual, uh, then that's, uh, that's the deal. That's great. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. It's really awesome to have you on. So I've seen uh, your books around. I um, and I've actually talked with uh, uh, about some of your scholarship with one of my friends who's um, who's a, a fan. And uh, did you ever think that you were going to have fans? Like, in, <laughs> do you have like groupies as a New Testament like professor? Like, do they come and like you know say things to you in Greek to try to profess? I mean, impress you and stuff like that. Uh, you have to be at the right place at the right time. So, um, you know, if, if I'm, you know, at one of kind of the major conferences for our, um, for our discipline, society, biblical literature, um, then someone might come up to you and say, Hey, you know, can I get a signature? I've read your book, but I'll tell you a funny story. I was at Trader Joe's a couple months ago and there was a young man probably in his late teens, uh, looking at me as I'm shopping and I'm thinking to myself, this guy knows who I am. And I was feeling really pumped up. You know, maybe he wants to talk to me, ask a question. He kept looking at me, smiling. 
and looked like he wanted to talk to me. And finally he came over and, and he whispered in my ear, pull up your pants. I can see your underwear. <laughs> <laughs> so that's really the more realistic side of how this works for me as, um, yeah, as a nerd in my field. But um, that's awesome. every, every now and again, maybe I might be surprised. That's normally my wife whispering that to me. So I'm, I'm sorry that that happened. Uh, that's yeah, awesome. My wife loves that I story. I don't know. I don't know if you said this, Josh, in your opening, but uh, you're you're in Portland, right? Um, yeah. So uh, I've lived here for several years. I was teaching at a school here called Portland Seminary, which is why I moved here in the first place. Uh, one of the reasons I moved here in the first place. Um, Northern Seminary came along and, and, and invited me to apply for one of their positions a little about a year and a half ago, a couple of years ago. And um, my wife's a pastor here in Portland. Uh, our kids awesome. love it here. We have three kids in soccer. It's a big soccer city. <laughs> I'm really snobby about my coffee and, and uh, I'm a foodie. Um, and we just love the atmosphere here in the Pacific Northwest, the, the walking and the hiking. And um, I ha- I'm one of those nerd people that has an electric bicycle. So um, yeah, you know, the idea of going to Chicago winters is really, uh, uh, not something I want to do. So we just worked it out. I'd recruit students from the Northwest and, uh, Northern's in Chicago land, but I fly there every now and again, and I teach a lot online and I just taught a week long course there on Philippians and Philemon. So, and I'm going again in October and I'm going again for graduation. So, um, so I make some, uh, you know, I, I take that, uh, PDX to ORD trip, uh, frequently throughout the year. Uh, and this is a new world we're living in. We actually planned all this before the pandemic. This was the plan wow. before the pandemic. And just with the pandemic, it's worked well. We have great, I know you weren't advertising for Northern, but we have great distance programs. So you too can be a student <laughs> at Northern Seminary. That That's is, great. I have one, one, one last question. Do you, do you randomly put birds on things? You know, it's funny. Portlandia is not as popular here as it is perceived to be, but, um, p- it's pretty realistic for certain parts of Portland. I actually live in a more um, quote unquote normal part of Portland, Southwest Portland, which is not as kooky. Um, the kooky side <laughs> is a particular side and it's funny. Almost everything they do in the show is on the East side uh, and on the West side is, is where uh, we're a little, a little, a little bit more like other cities. So uh, <laughs> no, not as much birds, but um one thing I like is we don't have a homeowners association, so we can let our, That's our awesome. uh, uh, let our lawn get a little crazy sometimes, and no one's going to give us any looks because it's Portland. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> and you can also grow huge marijuana plants there as well if you want. I mean, not that you would, but you, if you could. Want. But there's a dispenser on every corner, so. <laughs> You're competing with everybody else. (laughs) Well, that's awesome. Well, well, thanks again for joining us. So let me just ask you this. How did you get into studying the New Testament? Yeah, I actually um, grew up in a Hindu family. I'm from North Central Ohio. My parents came to the United States uh, in the early 70s. Uh, I was born in Ohio. And uh, my brother, older brother, became a Christian through some friends. And he started taking me to church and, and, um, you know, I didn't really know much about Christianity or the church before high school, um, even though I lived in a very Christianized context. Uh, and the gospel just resonated with me. And, um, I, as they, as the kids say, I was on fire for the Lord. So I was, um, going to church like four times a week. It was just like I couldn't get enough of it. And I just knew I wanted to be in ministry somehow. Uh, I went to Miami University of Ohio to study, uh, communications and classics and religion. 
Um, and I was really involved in ministry while I was there, parachurch ministry. And actually, I wanted to be a missionary. Um, my first inclination was to be a missionary, but um, I just had, I, I ended up kind of by accident taking classical Greek in college. I ended up kind of minoring in it, minoring slash majoring in it. And I was able to read the Bible in Greek, or at least try to read the Bible in Greek. And I was just hooked. I just thought like, Mm -hmm. I want to read the Bible in Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic. And so I went to seminary, not really knowing what I wanted to do career wise, but knowing I just loved studying the Bible. It was fascinating to me. It's God's word, but it's also historically rich, socially rich. It's great literature. um, And I just love the ancient world and what we can learn from people from 2000 years ago. And I got a chance to TA for Greek, uh, which sounds like a boring thing, but it was actually really <laughs> awesome. I got to learn a lot about Greek and then pass it on to students. And um, I just felt like that atmosphere of mentoring, educating, training, equipping, teaching uh, just was what I was called to do. I, I really I really didn't like college that much. I didn't resonate with the courses that much uh, in general. But in seminary, like I found my people like these are this is my people, people that wow. geek out on commentaries and lexicons <laughs> and, uh, you know, fanboy stuff like you're talking about where you're following around <laughs> N.T. Wright, uh, you know, that kind of thing. So uh, then I actually got to go to Durham, uh, University of Durham to do my Ph.D. N.T. Wright was the bishop of Durham at the time, which was a big wow. deal. Um, John Barclay, uh, who's still there, is considered kind of the, the number one New Testament scholar, social historian, New Testament scholar in the world, I would say. And I was kind of in the heyday of Durham's time there. Um, just kind of the uh, it's like the 19, 1990s era bulls of uh, New Testament scholarship. Um, and so we I, we I just had a blast. It was it was amazing. So I really found my call. I actually think of what I do as pastoral ministry, but I do it in the context cool. of the seminary. And, sure. um, and I get the summers off. So there you go. <laughs> That's the best deal <laughs> hey, I can buy. Better. Yeah. Well, uh, be, being that you're in Portland, um, I, I do have to ask you this question. Um, the, um, who knows more about the Bible, you or Tim Mackey? <laughs> Tim is a wonderful guy. Um, Tim, Tim knows, I, I would say Tim's breadth of knowledge is unmatchable. I mean, he has the coolest job in the world of just, saying, Hey, I'm going to study this topic and has resources and funds and researchers helping him to do that. And then he gets to construct these beautiful storyboards along with his team of illustrators, John Collins and others. Um, so, uh, I would say his breadth of knowledge is, is pretty amazing. Um, but, uh, we, 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 we get lunch every couple of months and, um, it's fun to go see, uh, just what he does and how he does it. Uh, I'm going to have a group of doctor ministry students out here to Portland, uh, next summer, and I'm going to bring him in, uh, to talk to our students about, um, teaching in the 21st century. What does Christian teaching look like, uh, in, in America in the 21st century? And I love his creativity. I love, uh, his passion for taking big ideas and teaching them in creative ways. So I, I have nothing but love for Tim. <laughs> yeah, well, th- I, I I had to ask because I yeah I followed the the Bible project for for a while and uh, definitely yeah, th- definitely think the work that he's doing is is good. But but my my real question that was kind of a throwaway question. But my real question is is uh you know so I'm I'm kind of the the political wing of our of our duo and the, I'm the politics part of the faithful politics and uh, and I'm curious about um 
politics kind of in the age of the New Testament. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that a lot of us think about, you know, you know, today we've got Republicans, Democrats, Libertarians, whatever. Um, and and is is there like a similar political dynamic that existed, you know, back in the days of Jesus? Or is it all basically just is it more like governmental just rule with the Romans and what have you? You know, uh, the the conversation about the Roman Empire in the time uh, of early Christianity is is really interesting right now. Um, before the middle of the 20th century, um, scholars didn't pay much attention to bigger political um, structures and entities and their effects on the way the early Christians engaged with their neighbors and thought about their their life and faith. And then with kind of um, especially American politics and to some degree British politics, there was this kind of heightened awareness that that started to grow in the late 20th century about how um, wider political structures shape how we think about religion, how we think about God, how we think about um, how our uh, systems uh, use religion or use religious language. Um, how it's interesting to look at presidents of the United States over the course of the last 150 years, how they use Bible verses, um, which, uh, for example, Joe Biden just did recently about Afghanistan. And there was mixed, uh, lots of mixed, uh, feelings about that, but this is true of both blue state, uh, red state, uh, uh, politicians where they use the Bible. So to get at that uh, question you're asking, um, over the last 20, 30 years, there's been this deep interest in um, Roman politics and how the early Christians reflected, thought about, collaborated, negotiated, pushed against all of that. And what we normally see in uh, biblical studies, as we see in other disciplines, is pendulum swings. So you have this discovery of, oh, aha, the early Christians were anti-empire. So you had the 80s and early 90s, where there was a lot of scholarship on how the New Testament writers were anti-empire. Um, and and there's actually some really good uh, books about this. Richard Horsley has some really good work on this. John Dominic Crossan, N.T. Wright entered the fray and, and started to talk about this. Um, and then you started to see some pushback. And the pushback uh, is basically trying to see what's happening as exaggeration. Uh, And what happens with the pushback is there's a recognition that um, you really have a spectrum of responses in the New Testament to the empire. Um, The book of Acts, for example, can reflect very positively uh, on imperial leaders uh, and, and Paul's appeal to imperial leaders saying, hey, let me testify, you know, we Christians are trying our best to um to be good citizens of of your empire. Then you have the book of Revelation, which, you know, really calls out empire and calls it uh evil and demonic and you know things like that. Uh and then you have stuff that's kind of in the middle, like what do you do with the household codes and slaves obeying masters? And on the one hand, Paul is, you know, I'm doing a lot of research right now in Philemon. And so you have this interesting thing where Paul doesn't question slavery as an institution, uh, which we find abhorrent. 
at the same time, he says to Philemon, accept back Onesimus as more than a slave, as a beloved brother. What does that mean? That's clearly uh, different than most people thought about slaves. Slaves were property. One scholar refers to slaves as slave things because they're, <laughs> they're, like, uh, they're like fleshly property. And here Paul's saying, welcome as you welcome me. So he's doing this thing that scholars call status destabilization. So when I wrote, I wrote a book chapter on this for, I'm going to advertise one of my books here. It's called Beginner's Guide to New Testament Studies. And I have a chapter in there on the New Testament and the Roman Empire, just raising those questions that that you uh, have raised. And I had to come up with what the views and scholarship are. Like it's not something where it's been around for hundreds of years, like predestination and free will. So So one of them was, the New Testament writers are anti-imperial. That's one view. I had to come up with the other view and I thought, what do I call it? So I think I called it uh, New Testament writers negotiating empire hmm. because I, I wouldn't go as far as to say scholars are going to say they're just blind collaborators. The New Testament is dangerous. The New Testament is volatile. The New Testament does raise questions about power status, but I really like the language of negotiation because hmm. you have a minority people. Uh, teeny tiny, you know, the, the, the biggest church in, in probably the first century around the time of Paul was in Rome. We're talking a couple hundred people. We're not talking thousands. Uh, at most, let's say the Roman church was 350 people. Um, I'm from Ohio. That's like a teeny tiny boutique church <laughs> in Ohio. Okay. <laughs> we, we know big churches in Ohio. And, uh, at, but here in Portland, you know, 350 is massive. And so um, we have to think about on that level. So these Christians were teeny tiny. So they're not going to throw these rocks at Caesar. Um, and the question is, are they really interested in policy change? Do they have any capacity for policy change? Most of them were low status, no status people, a lot of slaves in early Christianity. They didn't, they couldn't change public policy. So we have two questions and then I'll stop talking. One question is, what do the Christians do? when it came to politics, empire. And the second question, do we have a different set of responsibilities because we vote, because we have social media and we can, we can use populist power to change policy. We have tools at our disposal that they couldn't even dream of. And that raises a different set of questions. Uh, then the Bible can inspire us, but we don't, you know, the, you know, they, they couldn't just uh, go and pick it outside of uh, uh, of uh, Caesar's palace the way that we can outside the White House. Right. That makes that totally makes sense. You know, I actually I think those two questions when we were writing down questions to talk to you about those um, encapsulate and frame very well the conversation that we really want to have. Like what. And one of those conversations I know is you as a Pauline scholar, someone who studies the Apostle Paul, who is one of the key figures, right? So the reason I say that is we have a lot of different um, listeners, atheists, people that haven't read the Bible once, and people who are very, very committed uh, Christians and to their faith, and they've read through the whole Bible many times or whatever. So we, and that's why I try to define there. But if we're thinking about the Apostle Paul, you know, writing his letters and you're saying writing the letter to Philemon, who is a slave owner, about Onesimus, who is a slave. Right. So if we're if we're looking at this, um, what what do you think, Paul, how did Paul handle the political issues of his day? Like, what did he do to like and how can we tell from looking at his letters how he felt about the Roman Empire and 
what, how he told Christians to act. I mean, um, and again, just kind of answering that first question of how, how did they even exist in this, in this empire that was far different than our context and, 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 and far more powerful um, than even a government we have to face today? Well, uh, I would start with just making sure that when people read the Bible, they understand that we have um, certain mentalities and things that we're aware of that ancient people weren't. So, um, so for us to look back and say, shame on you early Christians for having slavery, uh, probably a lot of early Christians, uh, in the elite class had slaves. Um, it was just kind of assumed, uh, as part of culture, just like in India today, um, you know, it's very common to have servants, uh, people of kind of low class that you pay very little to do your, uh, manual labor. And we would look at that and, and find that very, um, dehumanizing or uh, unfair. Um, but you know, and we can question that, but we also have to say they, they have this long history of this, uh, and, and that doesn't make it good. I'm just saying we have to know what, where people are coming from in terms of their own history. And so I think about this, you know, the example I use is I remember watching an episode of Mad Men. And so this is taking place, you know, uh, 50, 60 years ago. And there's a there's a, a scene where Don Draper is driving in his car, I think it's a convertible, uh, no seatbelt, and and holding a glass of hard liquor. <laughs> He's drinking it, and this would be so unfathomable to us today. This is like the worst possible thing you could do as a human to us: <laughs> is drive without a seatbelt at night in a convertible, drunk while holding hard liquor. I'm not justifying. I'm you not saying it's good. You just need to have good. a kid outside of a. Uh, you just need to add a baby that's not in a car yeah. seat, and then yeah, you're right. divorcing. Yeah, uh, and 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 so this idea that this was normal at the time. I mean, maybe not good, but acceptable. You know, kind of uh, is interesting. And so you wonder a hundred years from now if people are going to look back at us and say, "I can't believe they used so much plastic." Um, you know, I can't believe they created vaping. I mean, so so. When we look back at the ancient world, that's something we have to think about is, did some of these things ever occur to the early Christians related to um, some of the moral issues that really bother us? Um, you know, Paul says, all Cretans are liars. Are, are we really allowed to say that? Is that, you know, that's not very, that's not very PC. Um, but, but you know, Scott McKnight, my colleague, he talks about how, um, in many ways, Paul's focus of his ministry is not on what's going on in the Senate the Roman Senate. It's what's going on in churches. And he cares. He cares a lot about people's lives. Paul cares a lot about people's lives. He wants their lives to improve. He wants their lives to change. He wants there to be fairness and equality. You read second Corinthians eight and nine, where Paul's talking about giving uh, financial gifts to the poor churches. This is politics, but it's not capital P politics. Uh, it's politics. When we define politics as uh, people participating in an organized community in such a way they care about the common good, right? So if you're talking that lowercase p politics, of course the early Christians care about this. Read Second Corinthians 8 and 9. If ever you had a biblical case for socialism, uh, this would be it because here Paul's saying neither rich nor poor, but everybody has enough that, they're, that their needs are taken care of. Um, that is, that is an anti-Roman sentiment. A Roman sentiment is 
there's rich because the rich deserve to be rich. There's power because the powerful deserve to be powerful. And we'll give, uh, we'll put on, you know, a gladiatorial uh, fight for the poor people. So they have some entertainment. I mean, that's what Juvenal said when he talked about bread and circuses, right? He's going to give them bread and circuses. He's going to rob them. He's going to tax the heck out of them. But he's going to, you know, he's going to give them a free, you know, Disney Plus account so that they don't complain. Um, (laughs) Paul's like, no, that's not the way it should be. Um, Going back to Philemon, Paul says, uh, welcome him as you'd welcome me. And in a world where social status was everything, um, that's a big deal. So just take a cultural example today. You have the Met Gala, which just happened, which is the you know the wealthiest of the wealthiest. Imagine you showed up as a celebrity with a homeless person, and they say, "Where are your tickets?" And you said, "Welcome him, him or hers. You'd welcome me." Um, no, that's not going to work. But this is what Paul's <laughs> saying. This is what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, "Welcome the least of these, the way you'd welcome me, an apostle, a Roman citizen, a person of high status, a person that you want to get to know and rub shoulders with." So. How did Paul think about this? Um, I agree that I don't think that he was picketing outside of the Senate. Uh, I think he wanted a grassroots revolution. But if he were alive today, I think he would do things differently. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, Josh Bertram here, faithful host of the Faithful Politics Podcast. I want to let you know about a compelling new spinoff, The Faith Roundtable, where I'll be interviewing top faith leaders, theologians, and scholars to unpack the pressing issues that are shaping the church in America today. We'll dive into topics like faith and public life, social justice, and how we can engage our communities more effectively. Make sure you don't miss any of our enlightening conversations by subscribing to it on our YouTube channel. Join me at the Faith Roundtable, where deep discussion meets thoughtful insight. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, you know, it's being being a West Coast kid, born in LA and lived on the West Coast uh, for like twenty five years before I um, drank the Kool Aid and moved to the South. Um, I've, I I noticed that. I don't know. There's like a difference in, in, um, I don't know, theology or politics. I'm not really quite sure what it is. Like, you know, I, I was, I got saved on the West coast, but then I moved here to the East coast or the South. And, and I, and I'm curious to, to, to get your, to get your view on, you know, if you find that, that there is kind of a, a, a difference um, in theologies and, and, and maybe, maybe more, more specifically to the point, you know, like, okay, so West Coast typically tends to be more left-leaning, um, East Coast, Southern, more right-leaning. You know, if you think that politics is shaping the respective coast theology, mm-hmm. you know, more than the theology shaping, you know, the, the coast politics. Yeah, I mean, it is, it is, um, we call it a dialectic. It's a dialectic dynamic, meaning uh, one's going to feed the other and the other's going to feed it. And so, as I mentioned, I grew up in Ohio, um, North Central Ohio, very conservative environment. My parents have their picture taken with almost every Republican president of the last 40 years. Um, And uh, that's because my hometown has a center for Republican politics at the university. 
Um, and so that's the environment I grew up in. Uh, I grew up very suspicious of Democrats. I grew up believing Republicans were the Christian, uh, the Christian version of politics, uh, that the, had Christian values. Um, and I grew up, uh, you know, with the implicit assumption that uh, Democrats are are uh, theologically liberal and they don't care about uh, uh, bringing people to Jesus and so forth. Um, and then you come out to a place like Portland and um, and it would be very dangerous to drive around with uh, any kind of Republican paraphernalia in the city. Uh, actually, outside of the city, it, it's very actually uh, rural and, and Republican, but but. Uh, in Portland itself, it's a different story. Uh, what I would say is, you know, absolutely, um, we're shaped by the news we read uh, and watch. Uh, we're shaped by our preachers and what they're reading um, and what they're uh, thinking about and talking about and who they're rubbing shoulders with. Um, I know this is exactly what you're asking, but I think it's so important that we have cross-cultural experiences, meaningful cross-cultural experiences when we're young especially high school, college. Um, I, I I spent time in Guatemala uh, as a young person. I did missionary work in Eastern Europe. Um, I lived for three years in England and learned about socialized medicine. Um, we had a baby in England. Uh, I had surgery on my arm in England. And so when people say things like, um, oh, but the other side thinks this or believes this, um, my question would be, how well do you know those people? Um, the 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 capacity we have to demonize uh, the other side is really self destructive. I know you guys know that, but it's really interesting. I was thinking about how we use social media and the ways that we kind of lob grenades on social media against the left or against the right. And I've thought about saying, you know, hey, that's unhealthy. But then I know the pushback is sometimes necessary, and I get that. But my question would be, let's say you're on the right. Do you have meaningful relationships with people on the left? Uh, or if you're on the left, do you have meaningful relationships with people on the right? It's fine if you can be incisive and critical on social media. I think it's fine if you can if you can also have those relationships. And so just to give an example, two of my good friends in Portland in New Testament studies, uh, Patrick Schreiner, who's uh, no longer in Portland, he went to Midwestern Seminary, but um, he's kind of on the right of me theologically, but also probably politically. And, uh, and I learned a lot from him. And I, when I wrote the book, Paul, the language of faith, which, uh, which Josh said he read or has, uh, he didn't say he read it. He said he had it. Um, I will read it. It's on my <laughs> reading list. I promise. Uh -huh. That's what my kids say. Um, and, <laughs> but, but I sent it to Patrick before, uh, I sent it to the publisher knowing that he would call me out on on being unfair to the scholars to the right of me on whatever. And then uh, another colleague here in Portland is Ekapucha Tupamahu, uh, who's someone to kind of watch as an early career scholar uh, in New Testament studies, who's amazing. He, he writes a lot on the problem of whiteness uh, in biblical scholarship. Uh, he writes a lot on post-colonial. Uh, in fact, you should have him on your show. Ekaputra Tupamahu, look him up at Portland we Seminary. We would love to. Well, <laughs> and, yes. and he's more on the you know quote unquote left. I joke around with him uh, that uh, that he does liberal theology, and he pushes back because he uh, he doesn't see it that way. Anyway, um, <laughs> we get on really well, but but um, you know it's it's uh, I value both those friendships and relationships. I value the feedback uh, 
you know, Ekapucha, you know, we joke because uh, he doesn't read the kind of books I write in general because it's not his, and not his scholarship and not his community. Uh, but we, we get on really, really well. We learn a lot from each other. And so um, when you, you know, when you talk about um, uh, geography, culture, politics in the Bible, um, I teach at a seminary. One of the things I firmly believe is seminary can be transformative for your study of scripture and, and understanding of theology because you're going to be thrown in ideally with a corpus mixtum, with a, with a motley crew of students uh, where they're going to have completely different perspectives. So for example, I just taught this course on Philippians and Philemon. Uh, one student is a missionary in Turkey, another student a missionary in Germany, another student is uh, a native African and he's living here, but, but born and raised in Africa, he brings a completely different perspective on things. And, and in seminary, then you're forced into this cohort and community that's going to push back and have questions and conversations. At the end of the day, though, you're a family, you're a cohort, you're in this together. You believe the best in each other. Um, I'm worried about a culture in right now where we're moving further and further apart. I don't know if you guys have read C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, but it's held this uh, deep impact on me because he uh, Lewis imagines the gray place, which is kind of like hell, but not exactly. Uh, this place where God isn't. Uh, and what you see in this place is people over time move their, move further and further away from each other to the point where they're um, millions of miles away. They can't stand to be together. And Lewis's point is, this is the sinful human inclination is to push people away and then to judge them from a distance. And wow. um, I think we can reshape our politics. We can... We can have a, a gracious politic. Uh, we can have a gracious biblical theology by keeping the conversation going with uh, goodwill, while at the same time having enough of a good relationship with people, we can be incisive and critical. That's 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 the goal, and that's what we want to learn how to do. Yeah, you know, that, that, that's really interesting because we we spoke with um, uh, Trimper Longman, I don't know, some, some time ago, and uh, I don't read a lot of religious books because, like, I'm the political side, so why would I, you know? Uh, but, <laughs> but like, uh, when we, we were talking to him about, it was about abortion, and um, he also does, like, um, biblical um, translations or, or whatnot, so I, I, I sort of asked him a question about, you know, how can there be so many different, you know, meanings or contexts for what the Bible says and doesn't say? And and I and I'll never forget how he said, you know, just whatever people kind of bring to the table when they're translating will change, you know, like how they may say a word is or isn't. Um, and I'm I'm not smart enough to know how the translation process works, but but like he was, and and it and it made a lot of sense at the time. And I and I can't imagine that that same thing doesn't happen in our understanding of theology and then furthermore how we preach that understanding of theology you know i mean like there's a there's a large swath of people that think that you know trump is the messiah you know and they and they'll use scripture and all this other kind of stuff you know then there's like a whole group of people that says he's the antichrist and they'll use a whole bunch of scripture and stuff like that too and it, and it's just it just it it confuses me and it probably confuses people that aren't christian and they're like okay, all you Christians are just crazy, <laughs> you know? So um, I, I really appreciate just your 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 input on that because it, it really kind of helps um, me better kind of understand like 
maybe how to view theology through the lens of politics. Yeah, and and um, this is where preachers have an important uh, job because um, I'm a, I'm about to give some lectures at uh, a university uh, coming up in a few weeks on women in the New Testament, and so my lecture series called "Hidden Christian uh, Figures," you know, after hidden figures, uh, bringing the uh, the the women leaders of the early church from out of the shadows. So I teach a lot on how the New Testament actually uh, demonstrates a lot of women leaders, and I just taught a course, a seminary course on this. My students always ask, "How come I was never taught this? Who who was Euodia and Syntyche, Nympha, Tryphena, Tryphosa, right, Persis? How did I not ever hear about these people? Like the women that you know, I'll say in my lecture." Whenever Jesus on his ministry traveling, you know, had to pay a bill, he'd look back and and a woman, uh, uh, one, one of these rich women in his ministry pulled out their Chase Sapphire card. You know, uh, you know, Luke tells us that women essentially were the backers, uh, uh, this, you know, the, for Jesus's ministry and they're following him around and people that he healed. I mean, they're, they're Christians. Anyway, um, so my students often ask, how did we not know about this? How did we not? hear about this. And in my lecture, I'm going to say, um, so spoiler, but I'm going to say uh, the people that have taught us, have taught us, have framed scripture for us. They have given us a lens through which we look at God and the Bible and God's world um, for better or for worse. Uh, so for better, great, uh, but but also for worse. And so we'll say uh, things in the past. Oh, let me give an example. I think this is in Song of Solomon. I went to a great conference on race, race in the Bible uh, four or five years ago. And one scholar talked about how older translations, uh, uh, American translations of Song of Solomon, they'd have this phrase about this woman, uh, about her looks. And it said, she, uh, she's black and beautiful. And um, there's a connector in Hebrew, uh, the and. But the and can mean and or but. So for the longest time, translations had she's black, but beautiful. Because they're, they're qualifying the black. Uh, and, and, you know, you're asking questions about translations and we start to realize what biases are we bringing to this text where we assume black is not beautiful. And then we start to ask questions then about what did the author actually mean? Um, and, uh, so this puts the burden on translators. This puts the burden on seminary professors. This puts the burden on preachers to, uh, to have people uh, question, question them, call them out, uh, help them to think uh, about the issue from multiple perspectives. It doesn't mean we live in constant hesitation, but it means that we need to have people in our lives like the Patrick Schreiners or the Ekaputras who are going to call that we say, Hey, test me, test me on this. Help me see. So Paul Ricoeur philosopher talked about something called the second naivete. So first naivete is just when we're dumb and we just don't know something and someone, you know, has to call us out on it. And then we study an issue and we learn all the complexity and, and all the sides. And when you stop there, you just never have any views or convictions. But then he says, you reach a second naivete where you come back to, okay, I'm going to have a view. I'm going to move forward. 
but you do so with humility. You do so with circumspection. You do so knowing there are other views. Um, and we want to reach that that uh, second naivete. And, and we do that with politics, too. Um, I'll be very honest with you. Uh, I, uh, you know, in, in, in the original Trump uh, campaign, I voted for Bernie Sanders. Uh, Me too. I'm a, I'm a Bernie fan. I'm a huge <laughs> I'm Bernie, a Bernie fan. bro. <laughs> uh, but then over time, I became disappointed with some of his views and things. And so I, has, I saw it a little bit differently. Um, but I don't I don't necessarily look down on uh, red, uh, red, you know, red side views. Uh, I don't immediately dismiss them out of hand. I don't throw rocks at them, calling them evil. Um, I long for someone that probably fits a, a kind of middle ground um, or at least can can see both perspectives. So I think I think a lot of pressure is put now on pastors to be careful with how they portray, quote unquote, the other side. Um, that that's that's a dangerous game. Yeah, that makes so much sense. I mean, I'm you know. Will is kind of my, uh, he's the guy who, uh, is, is, um, my counterpart in terms of like, uh, challenging my way too conservative. Um, he just calls me like a white racist all the time and just like, basically, you know, just, uh, berates me, but no, but he's, uh, but we become very close and, 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 um, it's amazing how my views have softened, softened and changed because you're right. You're absolutely right. When there's no face to the view, then it's very easy to make them into a monster. But once there's a face and a relationship, then you can't do that. You simply can't do it. It's uh, not possible. And one of my questions, uh, you know, we're thinking about the kind of political upheaval we've had, the, 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 the Trump Republicanism that we've seen, um, the way in which Trump has, uh, you know, and all politicians to a greater or lesser extent have used faith, religion um, in America, certainly um, to either be for them or against them or to they all politicians use religion in America. I'm going to make an absolute statement that maybe it's right, maybe it's wrong, but I'm making it anyway. All politicians in America use faith either to further their career in one way or the other, whether they're against it or for it. They use it to further their political career. And, and my question to you is, we're Christians, people in the church, diverse views. What do you see as the two or three major debates, like the kind of debates that are church splitting, right, are, are like are like reformation kind of debates. They are, you know, or, or, the, or the schism between the Catholic Church and the Greek Orthodox Church. What are the debates right now? in the church that you see that are so important and how do we become informed biblically and faithful to the scriptures while bringing it into our own context? I know that's a big question, but you're very smart and I, I feel confident you can answer it. Are you talking about political debates or are you talking about theological debates? What, what debates are you talking about? I mean, it's more probably let, let's put the debates that, kind of come at the intersection of politics and faith. There are theological debates, right. and, but they're political in their, in their implications. Okay, yeah. I mean, the, the kind of master debate that uh, has gone on you know, since the beginning is the Christ and culture debate. 
um, is is the political culture and the political world something that Christians should get their hands dirty with and get involved in and care about and pay attention to, or um, should we just focus on our own people and focus on our own problems? You know, things like that. That that's probably to me uh, something that Christians, every church, has to talk about and think about. And I'll give you an example. So um, this was, you know, going on back in the, you know, the the uh, the first uh, uh, election um, with Trump, and I remember one very intelligent uh, theologian or, or ministry uh, influencer saying Christians should be interested in the political discussion, but not involved. They should be paying attention, but not involved. And I, I um, was very outspoken that that's the wrong attitude. And I said, I, my youngest daughter uh, at that time uh, was being treated for cancer and, uh, uh, thank God she's cancer free now. Uh, um, she's doing very well. But uh, at that time, I was very concerned, life or death, with um, healthcare and protecting people with uh, pre-existing conditions because she had one. Uh, and yeah. um, and I remember this guy who I respect a lot saying, um, "Well, I don't have skin in the game like you do." And I remember thinking, "You will." we all will. These are our lives. And so, you know, some people want to say, okay, you know, let the church take care of each other when it comes to medicine or when it comes to policing or whatever, you know, concealing, carrying the church instead of, um, this goes back to that issue of, uh, the early Christians didn't have the ability to come together and vote for X, Y, and Z. Uh, they didn't have the ability to speak out on, uh, healthcare because they didn't have healthcare. (laughs) And so, uh, uh, when I, when I come to these issues, I'm not answering questions, so I'm going to, but when I come to the issues, I think about the the quote that's attributed to Wesley, but I don't think there's any evidence exactly. But, uh, when it comes to thinking about culture and politics, I use this a lot with my students, do all the good you can to as many people as you can for as long as you can. That Hmm. should be our attitude towards lowercase p politics, you know, the polis the civic good. So when we say, I don't care what's going on in the news, I'm a Christian. I don't care what's going on in my neighborhood. I'm a Christian. That's an anti-Christian sentiment, right? Paul says, mm. let us do good to all, especially the household of faith, but the all is still there. And so this starts with compassion. You take the parable of the good Samaritan, right? That's all about compassion for the person that is not like you or for the, regardless of the, who the person is. This is Bonhoeffer's thing. We needed to be taking care of Jews, whether they're Christians or not. Hmm. And this was a controversial issue at the time that, oh, maybe we should just take care of Christian Jews. And Bonhoeffer says, no, this is a compassion issue. We need to care about the people out there. Then the question is, what do we do? But if people aren't beginning with the question, how do how does our church relate to the community outside of the church? Then uh, that's that's a number one issue our churches need to think about. That should be in our bylaws, or that should be in our mission statement. Hmm. How we think about our neighborhood, how we think about our community. So in the in the big box church era of the church growth movement, eighties, nineties, people started driving an hour to church. I know people that would drive two hours to church to go to Reading in California, which I visit every now and again. Um, so think about driving two hours to church, right? Your church is nowhere near you or your neighborhood. You get this, yeah. it can create a Gnostic dualistic thing. 
So we have this resurgence, what's called the new parish uh, initiative, which is churches need to care about their neighborhoods, the places where they are. So to get back to your question, I think it's a cornerstone issue for churches to think about uh, uh, how does my church relate to its neighborhood, to my city? Um, what kind of relationship do I have with the police, with the governor, with the mayor, um, hmm. with the people on our street? Uh, we have to think about this. This is, I think, the way that the early Christians thought too, is we need to have our eyes open to what God's calling us to in terms of compassion and care for the people around us. How we do that is up for debate, but that we do that should be number one priority or one yeah, of the you know, one I, priorities. Um, I, I, I wanted to ask you this at the very beginning when when Josh asked you how you kind of got into studying the New Testament, but um, like your, a lot of your books are about Paul. And I'm, and I'm curious about like, why, like why Paul and, and, and what, what's, what's the, you know, for, for a non-Christian, you know, what's the, what's the soundbite for why, why Paul is a interesting character? Yeah, actually, um, I think you're kind of reading between the lines here. I think you already know, but I love the real life nature of letters. Um, there's just so many little tidbits of information that you get in letters about real life. You know, Paul saying things like, um, you know, bring me my parchments when you come and visit me. Like I need more reading material uh, <laughs> or Paul saying, hey, I'm sending this person to you. Make sure that they have <clears throat> you show them hospitality like he does with Phoebe. Um, so uh, I think when people say the Bible doesn't really address real life, um, I think Paul, you know, for as highfalutin as some of his ideas are in Ephesians or Romans, so many uh, parts of his letters talk about day-to-day life as a Christian and what it means to just uh, uh, just on the ground, you know, what it means on the ground to live as a person in the world. I mean, I just, ended, I just taught Philippians, and um, Paul talks about real basic things like anxiety. I mean, Philippians chapter 4. Um, I... Uh, um, I've been having some issues with anxiety and I, you know, I have a spiritual director and he told me to buy a book on it. So I'm reading a book on it and I'm just amazed that Paul has some real practical advice on anxiety and he doesn't say, um, ignore it. He doesn't say pray that it goes away. I mean, he has some practical things on lifestyle, on processing our worries so I love Paul because I can imagine the world around Paul. I can imagine who he's talking to. I can imagine that he's thinking about real people in real places. And that's meaningful to me. If the Bible isn't relevant to people, people aren't going to read it. And so I love teaching about Paul because because he talks about real life. That makes so much sense. And, and you know, thinking about real life and, and, and we just have like a couple questions more thinking about how the Bible relates to our life. And I'm going to give a specific example. And what I would love for you to do and help us not answer it necessarily how you feel about it, which totally you can. And we'd love to hear your opinion on it and, and, and your expert opinion um, from the New Testament scholarship you've done. But more like even helping us understand the process that you go through as a scholar to move from, here's what Paul said here, and here's what we do now. 
to, if that makes sense, moving mm-hmm. through that process, uh, you know, that hermeneutical process and application process. So um, let's take the example, say, and I just want to give an example and, and, and maybe you can help us understand how to work through this issue. Let's take the example of, um, let's say, same-sex marriage, okay? Hot political issue, hot political and theological issue in, in the church, you can certainly we want to would love to hear your your take on it what your interpretation is but how do you think people who are faithful to the bible they want to be faithful to the bible they want to engage in this issue how should a christian go about understanding this issue biblically and then what kinds of applications to make yeah, that's that's a beast of a question. So, I will I will just give some uh, some inklings and and uh, uh, you know pointers. But this is this is a huge uh, uh, complex machine to talk about. But definitely uh, there, you know. So actually, I'm going to pitch again my book, A Beginner's Guide to New Testament Studies, because I actually have a chapter on what we call hermeneutics, which is our philosophy of how we interpret the Bible. So I think it's like application and use of the New Testament is the chapter. And I actually walk through different views of how scholars do hermeneutics and how they do what you're talking about, getting from text to application. But at the beginning of that chapter, I talk about two two approaches that we should never do. One approach I call um, direct universal. Direct universal is we just assume that uh, whatever the Bible says, we just do it explicitly always. And so it's this kind of thoughtless, um, slavish parroting of scripture. Now, sometimes when scripture says things, right, we can apply them directly. For example, don't be greedy. Don't commit adultery. Yeah, that's fine. You can do that, right? That makes sense. But for example, don't braid your hair. Um, Okay, that would be silly if we applied that directly and universally because we don't have the same cultural codes for what braiding your hair means now than they did back then. So, you know, or tattoos, for example, um, tattooing wasn't just about art back then, where it is just about essentially just about art for most people to do it now. So the direct universal approach is bad. The other bad approach is what I call a la carte, where we just say, I'm just going to pick and choose, right? So now we're dealing with something else. I'm going to give you um, what I was taught, which I use with my students. It's very simple. Uh, and then I'll get into the specific example you talked about. So there's something called the ladder of abstraction. The ladder of abstraction is this idea that scripture is not trying to always teach how to's. Uh, the ethic of scripture is discernment. That means we have to look at what are the values and virtues and morals behind scripture And then with tradition, with scripture, with experience, with the church, with prayer, then we discern what the application is. So with hair braids, that's not the issue is probably flaunting wealth or possibly flaunting sexual availability. Uh, That's not an issue with hair braiding today. So you you start here in the specific of the ancient world and you climb the ladder of abstraction to figure out what the moral or theological principle is. So if the principle is um, uh, focus on being a good person and not flaunting your sexual availability, let's say that's the principle, right? Then we climb back down the lab of abstraction to our world and say, <laughs> what does that look like? Um, and and if that's a simple tool, 
but it helps us to process, okay, there's going to be a lot of scripture that we just never talk about if we only try to do the direct universal. But all scripture becomes ultimately relevant if we climb this lava abstraction. Okay, the same sex thing. I'm just going to offer some pointers because it's a really complicated subject. But we have to talk about, um, number one, what are the values behind some of the biblical texts that talk about this? Um, there's a, a, a theory called protology and eschatology, which is any given text may not give you what, what God really wants all the time. Um, so the best indicators are how was it in the beginning and how shall it be in the end? Because in the middle of the story, there's all sorts of messy stuff going on. And so, you know, we always try to figure out, is there a good indicator of beginning and end? That's going to give you better sense than just picking verses. Uh, another question to ask is, um, uh, this is all about anthropology, right? A theological anthropology and a theology of community. Um, so we need to process questions in those texts about that. What is the theological anthropology there? What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be human in a relationship? Uh, another layer to talk about. So you're asking what to research. I'm giving you areas to research. Another aspect to talk about is uh, one thing may be normative. Uh, another thing may be allowed. For example, uh, marriage is normative, but divorce is allowed. Uh, and I'm not saying one way or another what should be done, but I'm saying those are questions that we can ask is normativity versus you know what's tolerable or how can we expand those questions come into play. Uh, is homosexuality or same sex about sex or is it about uh, identity or is it about orientation or is it about community? So that comes into play with terminology. When we say you can't be Christian and gay, what are we actually saying? Are we saying have sex? Are we saying be a part of a gay community? Are we saying identify as gay? Are we saying Mm. born gay? So those layers come into play. So um, those conversations need to happen. The the sad part is it's hard to have those conversations because we're quick to judge. My job as a summary professor is to make sure we can have those conversations in a safe place so that we're not quick to judge, so that we're not quick to say, end of story, the Bible says it, that does it. The Bible says a lot of things, and we need to be careful about what the Bible is saying uh, about these issues. So uh, with my students, I don't really give answers because I don't think that's my job. Uh, My job is to raise these hermeneutical questions, to foster a conversation, and to think about things like a theology of anthropology. Man, that was so good, Nijay. Um, I mean, Nijay, thank you so much. Like, I, I love that. Um, I love that. The Ladder of Abstraction, I've seen that in a, in a, in a preaching textbook by Donald Sanuchin. And, uh, but I love that concept, and I, we could keep talking about it forever. But um, here's the last question. Uh, so we have a, a variety of listeners. Again, we, we've had... Um, you know, atheists come on to the show. Um, our last uh, podcast was an atheist professor named Massimo Piliucci, and uh, he, you know, just uh, came on. We talked about pseudoscience and science and how creationism, he thinks, is a pseudoscience. So we talked about that. We, we, we've had, again, people lean to the left. We've got uh, Muslims on the show. We haven't had any Hindus. We need to get a hint, someone who's Hindu on the show and then Buddhist on the show. But you were a former Hindu, so maybe that counts. I don't know. Nah. I was an uninformed Hindu, so probably not. <laughs> an uninformed former Hindu. So we've had an uninformed former Hindu now on the there show, which is cool. Um, and, uh, no, but so so what I would 
say is, what do you want to say? What do you think is a really important thing that you want to say to listeners in our current culture that you just would feel like you'd want to communicate to an audience that's as ideologically broad as this? Yeah, I would say um, I'm really sad uh, that Christians have such a bad reputation uh, in America. I understand why they have a bad reputation, and I sympathize with uh, with people that say I don't want anything to do with Christianity because of um, the Trumpers or the anti-vaxxers or the you know you name it. I, I understand. Uh, and it is hard for me to see some of these things on social media and some of the hatred and some of the um, uh, hostility and, and, and pride. Uh, what I want to say is um, Jesus is not a modern white American. Um, I encourage people to read the Bible for themselves. People are often surprised who've never read the Bible, but only know Christians and what Christians say about the Bible in America. Uh, I would say, um, sit down, read the Bible, read the gospels. Jesus does some pretty, uh, interesting things, even if you're not a Christian. So I would say there's a reason why, um, Gandhi really liked Jesus. I mean, that is verified, uh, that, you know, that's a fact that Gandhi respected Jesus, even though he didn't particularly like Christians, obviously in a colonialized, uh, India, uh, he has some concerns with the way Christians do things. But Gandhi could read the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, Bonhoeffer, I don't know if you guys know this, but Bonhoeffer was actually invited. He, he actually uh, ma- uh, made a correspondence with Gandhi and was invited to go spend time with Gandhi in India. And because of what was going on in Germany, he had to turn it down. But could you imagine, uh, uh, you know, Bonhoeffer with a picture with Gandhi in, in you know, in India? That would be amazing. But uh, actually, Hindus respect Jesus by and large. Um, but what I want to say to your listeners is... Um, please try to uh, separate or see see a, a global Christianity that is not completely aligned uh, with American Christianity and even an American Christianity that is not homogenous. Uh, here in Portland, I spent a lot of time with Quakers. I spent a lot of time with Pentecostals. Um, and neither of those groups are identified with kind of mainstream evangelical Christianity that that people encounter that they don't like. Uh, Quakers are all about simplicity, silence, solitude, and peace. Who doesn't like that, right? Pentecostals, um, you know, uh, they're diverse, but they they don't identify. Uh, many of them don't identify with Trump Trump America. Um, so I would just say this is an these are ancient texts with ancient voices that have a lot to say about life in a different world in a different time. I'd also say follow some global Christians, follow people in Africa. Follow people in in uh, uh, in India and other parts of Asia um, who who are not white, who are not male, uh, let's say, uh, who talk about the Christian faith um, and and offer some interesting uh, different perspectives on on Christianity. Um, the heart of Christianity for me is uh, is the God of of grace filled transformation. Um, that comes with a price, uh, and it came with a price, but it comes with a price for us as well. Um, but but the Christianity that I believe in and that I see in the Bible is is about the Jesus who, as Paul says, loved me and gave himself for me, sacrificed himself for me. And if people start to think of Christianity that way, that might uh, allow for more conversation. Wow. Really well said, Nijay. Thank you so much for being 
on the uh, program with us today. It was such a pleasure. And guys, we'll see you next time. Until, until then, 